Hello and welcome, Alan Nelson. Hey, it's great. I'm grateful to be here, brother. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Alan, tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. <laughs> well, my name is Alan Nelson. I'm a pastor in rural Arkansas, central Arkansas. I'm married to my wife, Stephanie. We've been married about 17, almost 17 years. We have five children and one on the way. Um, I'm a, uh, I'm a particular Baptist, reformed Baptist, and I, uh, I pastor, we, it, we're a Southern Baptist church, but we confess the uh, 1689 as our, uh, confession. And, um, yeah, I'm, I've, I've written a few books on, on my third here, a change of heart, understanding, uh, regeneration and why it matters. And I have, I done 60 seconds that I do good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you done, you done very good. For anyone listening, there's, there's a good reason as to why you should actually watch the YouTube version. They're missing out on seeing that trophy just, just uh, above your left hand shoulder. What is that for Alan? <laughs> Believe it or not, that is a trophy for a, uh, a fair parade at, in our town. We have, uh, we, we still have county fairs. And so a few years ago we had a, we had a county fair and we, and the, uh, the theme was your favorite book. And so what do you think our church did? Right. We said we are people of the book and we had like a creation uh, scene. We like did the whole Bible. I mean, it was, it was really, uh, really, really beautiful. So, and, and we got a trophy for it. Oh, well, well done. Brilliant. I thought you were going to say something like wrestling alligators or something like that, Alan, right? But that's even, <laughs> yeah. that's even Bella. <laughs> well, you've we just written. We don't wrestle alligators this far north. Oh, do you not? What do you wrestle? Um, coyotes, maybe. Bear. We have a few bear. Uh, <laughs> possums. Possums in Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. You've just written a brand new book. You mentioned that you've you've written some before. This one's called A Change of Heart. What's it all about, Alan? Yeah, the the idea of this book is um, a few years ago, I wrote a book on understanding uh, uh, how how salvation works. And what this book does is is it it is it takes that and does a deeper dive, a theological dive into understanding uh, the ins and outs of regeneration. And not only a theological uh, treatise on regeneration, but also why does this matter so much practically? You know, so really it's three parts. First part's kind of short, but basically why are we in the state? Why, why do we need a book like this? Well, it's because evangelicalism is is on life support, really. And th then we, we walk through, okay, what actually is regeneration as taught in the scriptures? And then the third part is, okay, why does it matter if I if I get this right or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so, so important, like you say. So let's start off on the ground floor. What's a biblical understanding of the heart, Alan? So the heart in the 21st century, you know, evangelicalism is is just what you feel with. You know, you 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 feel with it, it's where your emotions are and, and all those sorts of things. But but biblically speaking, the heart is really the seat of of all that we are. Uh, we are said to think with our heart. Um, we do feel with our heart. Emotions are there. Affections are there. But it's more than just that emotional part of us. It's it's our thoughts. It's our soul. It's our, all this is used interchangeably in the scriptures. So it's much more. Uh, it's much more than just what people would think of today as, as feeling, you know, uh, John Owen, you know, talks about, uh, how it, how it, uh, uh, I'm reading a quote here, but it's, it's for the mind and understanding the will affections, 
whole soul. It inquires, discerns, judges, chooses, refuses. All these things are are bound up in the biblical understanding of the heart. Yeah, yeah, so good. A lot of people would profess to have a good heart. What would the Bible have to say about that? Yeah, the the Bible would have to say that your uh, Jesus says, by the way, blessed are the pure in heart. But what he means by that in that whole context of the Sermon on the Mount is those who are pure in heart are those who have been born again. And so without Christ, and, and even as believers, we are, our heart so often can still lead us astray because of fighting with sin and, and those things. But, but the unbeliever often says things like, you know, God knows my heart. And I think it was Paul Washer or somebody along the line, maybe Steve Lawson said, yeah, God does know your heart, and that's the problem. Right, because your heart is not pure. Your heart is deceitful. Jeremiah seventeen nine. Your heart is full of sin and wickedness and rebellion. Deep down inside, you're not beautiful, but wretched and vile. And that's that's just the plain teaching of the scripture. Um, and and it's hard for our twenty first century, you know, softness to receive such teaching. But if we don't deal with that then we don't get to the beauty and glory of the gospel. But what about all those good deeds, Salon? Yeah, so from, you know, the the reform perspective of depravity does not mean that a person doesn't, you know, you'll see a lost person help help that little old lady as it were across the street, keep her out of traffic. Praise God, we rejoice with that. The problem is the Bible says whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So even that is actually an act of rebellion against a holy and good God because it's not done out of a heart of love and, and devotion to Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that man's greatest need is not to try harder, but to be born again, the doctrine of regeneration. Tell us all about that, Alan. Yeah, Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, not what you must do, right, but what you must be. And he says, you do not be surprised. I say to you, you must be born again. This reminds us that there is something that must happen to us that doesn't come from within. You know, we think we think that if if um, the Lord would just tell us, here's what you need to do, then it would be easier. But but actually, that would be hopeless, because if if what we need to do, if, if our salvation is dependent on what we need to do, it's not only that we could never do it we would never do it we don't want to do it we we want to go our own way and be our be our own god and so what needs to happen to us is the grace of god needs to give us a new heart we need to be born again otherwise there's never uh our, our default position so some people who uh, push back against reformed theology you know they say well everybody is responsible you know everybody makes a choice amen reformed theology agrees with that Everyone is responsible, and everyone does make a choice. The problem is, apart from the grace of God and regeneration, the choice is always away from God and never to him. Yeah, so true, so true. So what does it mean to be born again? To be born again is is a total change. We have this imagery in Ezekiel 36 of the heart, of God removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. This is beautiful imagery, but it shouldn't be thought of as just that physical organ. You know, it's imagery to help us understand that what God is doing in regeneration is a total overhaul of the person. 
just like just like depravity affects us all from head uh or us in totality from head to toe so too does regeneration affect everything about us so what happens in regeneration is it's it's not glorification right it's not all of a sudden we're made perfect and now go no 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 but what happens is our our our, our disposition is changed. Our affections are changed. Our attitude is changed. Our will, as it were, is freed from sin and bondage, whereby now we see Christ in his beauty and glory. We embrace it. We run to him. And now we have these desires to do the things that God calls us to do. And so regeneration is the total overhaul of a man. It affects or woman or boy or, or girl and affects affects everything about us. You mentioned at the top of our interview that there are many people that go around today claiming to be a Christian, but denying that they've ever been born again. What would the Bible say about these people, Ella? Yeah, you know, and there's no there's no category, you know, for born again Christian. It's just Christian because right. that's default. If you are a Christian, you are born again. Um, if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. We'll stop. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> very, very clear. If someone is listening who has held on to some sort of nominal faith up until now without experiencing a new birth, what would you want to say to them, Ellen? You know, I've been doing some reading recently and studying and teaching a class at my church right now on the Great Awakening. And there were so so first thing I would say this, I I guess if I could offer encouragement. The encouragement that I would say is if, if you're dealing with nominal Christianity and you're satisfied in nominal Christianity, I guess the, the bit of encouragement I would give is to say, look, you're not alone in the sense that historically, this is not the first time someone has held such a position. So that's the encouragement. It's not like you're isolated and no one has ever had this thought before. But the discouragement and the challenge and the warning to you, I would say, is for you to be in such a state is for you to be on the path to an eternal ju eternal judgment, eternal hell. And what happened during the Great Awakening is people were like, well, I was baptized when I was younger. You know, I'm, I'm part of the state church. I'm part, you know, this is, why would I need to be converted? They let me come to the Lord's table. What, what are you talking about needing to be born again? Well, I would just say to you, as, as men like Edwards and Whitfield begin to preach the reality of justification by uh, faith alone and, and God's uh, sovereignty and salvation and the necessity to be born again, a lot of people were stirred out of their nominal Christianity and, and, and fled to Christ and repented of their sin and, and believed the gospel. So, so I say to you, if you're listening and you're in a nominal state of Christianity, though there is maybe encouragement in the sense that you're not alone in that, the warning you must take very soberly and very seriously, because if you do not repent and believe the gospel, uh, you will not be saved. And the only way for that to happen is for God to work uh, in your life. And so um, uh, you must do, <laughs> you must flee to Christ uh, because the state that you're in is a very, very dangerous one. Yeah. So helpful. Thank you. When we talk about the new birth, a lot of people's thoughts may go to John chapter three and the story of Nicodemus. What are the important things for us to take out of that passage? You know, actually, I would say, and I talk about this in the book, but one of the important things to take out of that passage is that I think perhaps 
when the chapters got divided that they missed it on this one. And it really should have started at the end of chapter two, because that's the whole argument that John is making as he as he presents this to us in, in the gospel. And that is, there were many people that believed Jesus. And, and today, in evangelicalism today, and in many Baptist churches today, I know in America, they say, oh, you believe Jesus. All right, next thing we're going to do is we're going to baptize you. And we're going to tell people how many people believed in Jesus. And we're going to we're going to say, praise God. But Jesus is very clear. It says he did not entrust them, himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He had he needed no one to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. And what is in man? A, a, a stone, a cold, dead heart sin. And so then when we get into chapter three, we begin to realize here's this good guy. You know, Nicodemus, we have no reason to to think, a uh, member of the Sanhedrin, that he was anything other than an upstanding guy. We'd probably uh, let him watch our kids. We would probably align with him politically and, and all these things. But the point that Jesus is, is making in this dialogue with Nicodemus is there is nothing outside of yourself that you can do to get into the kingdom of heaven. What must happen is you must be born again. And this is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it, where it will, uh, so so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom. Not only that, one other thing I'd mention is that this is not a new teaching. Jesus is not teaching something new so much as he is carefully showing this is the re- understanding of even the Old Testament, because he says to Nicodemus, how are is it that you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things. That, well, yeah. Nicodemus didn't have the New Testament. He only had the Old Testament. But Jesus showing that even in the Old Testament, these are the promises of the New Covenant. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. Where does the idea of new birth show up in the Old Testament? Well, one place is uh, um, really unequivocal. Every, everyone should agree is uh, Ezekiel 36. You know, 25 through 27, we have this beautiful picture. You know, God says, I will remove the heart of stone and I will replace it uh, with the heart of flesh. But but that's not the only place. You know, we have um, an idea uh, even in uh, in the uh, writings of Moses of the need to be circumcised, not just outwardly, but of the heart. OK, we have uh, the promises of the new covenant, new covenant in Jeremiah. So we have all these time and again this kind of crops up that outwardly keeping the law it was never the way to be able to uh to 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 work to get to get to god it has to be with with the heart yeah yeah really good stuff really good when we think about the order of salvation where in the process of salvation does a person's change of heart occur yeah this can be a little bit tricky in the sense that when we talk about these things, we really try to tease out um, things that the Bible, the Bible just gives them to us. And so as, as theologians, as Christians, as pastors, and what we like to do is we like to, to try to kind of dig in and, and tease this out, which is right and good to help us understand it better. But there does come some limits sometimes in, in how far we can press these things. But just... Uh, to mention, it's it's very clear in the scriptures that regeneration is not the result of faith. 
but it's it's the cause of faith you know so um election is the decree of god before the foundation of the world but regeneration happens in time so you know regeneration follows uh the decree of election uh preceding regeneration now i didn't get into the book of uh dealing with infants and and those sorts of things it's kind of beyond the scope but uh the normal aspect of uh of regeneration happens under the the heralding of the word of god uh conviction of sin and and the um we can kind of tease out effectual drawing and regeneration there but effectual drawing you might say is that that a that initial drawing but regeneration is happening during that but that produces immediate faith and repentance so it's not to be understood as though regeneration happens and then you know hey maybe three weeks later someone has faith and re repents now they may not understand it i've dealt with many people in fact I'll, I'll tell you brother i think that um i think that maybe john bunyan in his uh in his long drawn out conversion process like maybe he was converted before he understood that he was converted okay but the reality is when we are born again, we do repent and believe the gospel, even if it is, it might take us a little bit of time to realize, okay, that's when that was. So long story, I'm sorry, long answer, but the point is regeneration produces faith and repentance rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah it's really helpful. Great stuff. In your new book, you take some time out, uh, and I love this, to, to look at church history and what people have believed about regeneration from one period to another. What were some of the most interesting things that you discovered whilst you were doing that? You know, in the in the early church, in the time of of the fathers and um, before uh, before the the Nicene Creed, I mean, you had this understanding, a clear understanding that uh, regeneration was this total overhaul. Okay, so Tertullian, for example, said every soul by reason of its birth has its nature in Adam until it is born again in Christ. Moreover, it is unclean all the while that it remains without this regeneration, and because unclean, it is actively sinful. So, so my theory is that this understanding of the necessity of regeneration, when I didn't talk about this in the book, but this understanding of the necessity of regeneration and then the high infant mortality rate is what ultimately ends up producing um, infant baptism. Obviously, I would say that as a Baptist, you know, that uh, that that's they understood it was because they understood the need for regeneration that they thought well what are we going to do with the we've got to baptize these infants and so that's was one uh one thing to to think about but but beyond that there is this duel uh for 2000 years of church history between what i would call a biblical or monergistic understanding of regeneration and a synergistic uh, understanding of regeneration. What happens is early on, you know, you have people in the in the was it fifth fifth century with Augustine and and Pelagius and and that going back and forth, and then this this uh, happens again uh, always over the years. But but then it happens again very prominently when you have the differences between John Wesley and George Whitfield, and and then really by the time you get to the nineteenth century and you have somebody like Charles Finney who regeneration is turned into something that you do now now they would say that god does it but essentially you you have to tell god to do it right it's just a convoluted mess and it really has resulted so there's a historical context what i'm saying is why we're at where we are today is because 
you've had a a long line of men who have refused to embrace the biblical teaching that uh, that it's God who does the work in regeneration. Now, I, I will say this. I'm not saying that everyone who's gotten regeneration wrong is not a Christian, right? right. Um, I mean, obviously, Pelagius was uh, condemned as heresy, Pelagianism. But you have people that you might consider, like John Wesley, you know, seemed to me to be a believer, but he was wrong. He was definitely wrong about some important things. And our theology has serious consequences. And so you see that today in evangelicalism. It's really the seeds have been planted for 2,000 years, and they continue to produce the negative fruit that we see today. It, what I'm saying is this didn't just come out of nowhere. Like, oh, yeah, right. one day we'll just uh, we'll decide that if you say a prayer, you'll be saved. And, and it doesn't matter if you're changed or not. That didn't come out of nowhere. That's right. been centuries of, uh, of work. Yeah, yeah, um, something I find I think may surprise, and, and, and it's certainly going to be interesting to some people. Would be just to pick up on what you said about John Wesley. What were some of those things that he got wrong, especially around the new birth as well, Alan? You know, Wesley. There, there's there are some things about Wesley that I think um, pastors would do well to imitate. You know, his generosity and and those sorts of things. But there are some things that he got wrong. Obviously, his doctrine of of uh, perfectionism, and I think is a, a misunderstanding of sin. But really, Wesley is is credited for taking Arminius's um, theology and and um, adding to it, you know, adapting it, maybe, and 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 coming up with the doctrine really of what we call prevenient grace, you know, and that is basically every person, every person has this um, this this opportunity to be born again if they want it. Okay, the problem with that is, just to say it very clearly, I'm not sure your your listener base, but if, if someone may be listening and not understand what we're talking about, the problem with that is it makes the final determiner in regeneration the, the sinner. And therefore, like in 1 Corinthians 1, where it says, where Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, you, you you can say at the end of the day, no, no, all it's all because of God's grace. I would have never done it with apart from God's grace. But at the end of the day, you could say to someone else, well, but I was more humble. And 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 I took the opportunity. God's prevenient grace was shown to you. God's prevenient grace was shown for me. The only thing that distinguishes us is I was humble enough, wise enough, smart enough, desperate enough, whatever you may say, to partake the grace that was offered me. And it ultimately, David, puts the final determiner of salvation, not in the hands of God and not in not in the sufficiency of grace, but in the hands of sinful men. It would be that, that was Wesley. Quick, yeah. Yeah. And that'd be a pretty quick way to kill off Christianity, right? If that was yeah. the case. That's right. That's right. <laughs> We, we live in an age today where it's popular for people to be whipped up emotionally with worship music, to then be presented with a an altar call, um, to then be told by the preacher that they're now saved after responding. What are the dangers with this, Alan? Well, obviously, it's n never given to us in the scriptures. You know, not one time do we have this sort of model given to us in the scriptures. Our emotions, um, Paul talks about, is it Second uh, Corinthians 7, I believe, when he talks about godly grief and worldly grief? And our emotions 
can certainly be whipped up. They can be manipulated. And we can we can cry like we understand that the problem with so many people today is not that they don't understand they're guilty. So many people understand they're guilty. Uh and 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 you can whip them up emotionally and and they can cry and they can say, I feel bad. You know, I know, oh, I shouldn't be living with my boyfriend. I know that. Oh, I'm just okay. And then and they cry and then they and then they, they say this prayer. And then and then the church says, Okay, you're saved. You know, and I was like, well, the problem is you're it's just you're an immature Christian. Well, well, the dangers with this, brother, are uh a multitude. You have some of these people who are never converted who wind up being teachers deacons pastors sundays you know in the church of course that that pushes us astray you have some of these people who may go their whole life with false assurance uh it, it's it's a it's a it's a terrible emotional game and, and i encourage anybody who who is doing this to to repent of it and to and to just search the scriptures i'm not trying to be unduly harsh here but i'm saying we're not we're not playing a game we are we're dealing with real souls, and we have to trust the sufficiency of Scripture for when it comes to um, telling us about how a person is uh, born again. Yeah, that's excellent. Really, really helpful. And uh, what are your thoughts towards the sinner's prayer? This is another thing that has seemed to cause so much confusion. Yeah, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen and amen. But we don't get from that to everyone who recites this prayer and really means it will be saved. That's a big jump. That's a logical jump, and it's it's not an exegetical jump either. And so the problem with the sinner's prayer is that we've created this, especially in Baptist life, we've created this formulaic prayer that is essentially the third the third sacrament, right? So it's like, we we would push heavily against people that say, well, you're baptized to be born again. We'd say, no, like, you obviously can't do that. We and Or someone would say, we take the Lord's Supper to be born again. we push back say, obviously you can't do that. But now we've created this system. Oh, no, no, but if you say this prayer and you really mean it, then you're born again. And in reality, in many of personal conversations I've had, I've I've had people get to the point where I I could have led them in the prayer. But instead, I've I've let them pray, and what that's shown me, what I've said something like, "Well, you know, would you like to pray?" And sometimes they've prayed, and they said, "I, I remember this guy in my office one time. He's like, Lord, would you just be with my grandma? She's really sick, and I just she needs you, and thank you for blessing me, Amen, or something like that." And I was like, "This guy has no clue," but I could have led him in that prayer, and he would have repeated after me, and he would have walked away and say. Yeah, I got saved. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. And another issue that we probably see far too often is a preacher uh, speaking, assuming that everyone in the church is born again uh, when, when preaching a sermon. What's the risk with huge assumptions like this? Yeah, I, I, I would, you didn't ask this, but I'll address the other side. I don't, you know, sometimes I've heard sermons where it seems like the preacher assumes no one is born again, you know, and you're like, <laughs> right, whoa. <laughs> and and maybe that's okay in certain contexts, but in the regular preaching of the word of God, Sunday morning, uh, Sunday in, Sunday out, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, the pastor should assume that, yes, there are certainly people there born again. They're members of the church. 
But there are people who are deceived, Matthew 7, and there are most assuredly visitors, and there are most assuredly children who are not regenerate. And all this means that when we preach the Word of God, we're not only dealing with Christians, but we need to confront sinners with the law and the gospel. Let me give you a real tangible example. This coming Sunday is Mother's Day. And one of the things about Mother's Day that I found over the years in in, uh, in the U.S. of Mother's Day, one thing I found over the years about Mother's Day and Father's Day is this. On Mother's Day, I've heard many sermons where people just build up mothers, how grateful and wonderful moms are, how beautiful women are. and um, And then when you get to fathers, how terrible dads are, you're scum, <laughs> and you you need to step up. Well, the problem, there's a problem with both of those. What both moms and dads need, not just on these special days, but every Sunday, is the law to confront their sin, to confront their 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 inability to realize that they are sinners, and then they need the gospel to realize this is this is who Jesus died for, sinners. Yeah. And so if we don't if we just assume everyone's born again or or we have some sort of Joel Osteen universal type mindset or something like that, then we will not faithfully preach the word of God right and apply law and gospel right to our listeners. Yeah, yeah. And in your experience, what are some of the indicators you've witnessed when speaking to someone that they are not ready to be safe when speaking to them? Yeah, I'll give you that example, you know, from earlier. I mentioned, you know, the man in my office and um, here's what we have to be careful. We're not talking about you have to try a certain amount or you have to reach, you know, well, you were only convicted a little bit. Okay. These things are a bit subjective, you know, uh, about conviction and, you know, your response and all those sorts of things. But, uh, while they may be subjective, there is a necessity of those being present. Okay, so someone may not fall on the floor wailing, but they need to understand that they have sinned against the whole, like, holy God. And, like, the reason their sin is bad is not because they're going to go to jail for it. One time I was at a, a church and I'd been there like three years as the pastor, and a man showed up and I introduced myself. He said, Oh, I'm a member here. Well, I hadn't seen him in three years. Well, I got to visiting stuff like that. Well, come to find out, he was fixing to go to prison for child pornography. And so what had happened was we well, started coming back to church, you know, and it was like, you're not coming back to church because you're seeking the Lord. You're, you're coming to church because, because your sin has found you out and now you're in trouble. And so um, someone that uh, evidence is that you need to see in, in, in a person being born again is, is conviction of sin uh, understanding, you know, uh, what the gospel is and, uh, understanding their need for trust in Christ and, and a willingness, you know, Jesus says, count the cost. I was counseling a young man the other night uh, who we believe is converted. And, and I said, you know, I think the Lord has great plans for your life, but they may not align with what you think those plans are. And it might mean giving up football. It might mean giving up the things that you think that are important to you. Are you willing to do that? And he said, and in a most sincere way, yes, you know, Christ is worth it. 
And so those are some things that we need to see in a person. And and when those things are not present, um, I I would say that it looks as though someone is is not uh, understanding the totality of the gospel and what it requires. Just pastorally, let me mention this. It's that's okay. Like David, sometimes we get in a counseling situation, and for some reason we just be like, we've got to be able to stamp this tonight. But it's okay to work through these things with the person. And 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 it may be, so what? You may, may you may get to a point, you may not be able to say, okay, it was April 13th at 1245 p.m. when this person came to Christ. That's okay. Sometimes you can say that. You're like, wow. But sometimes, right. oftentimes you can't, and that's okay. Just keep counseling with the person. Keep praying for the person. Keep walking through these things with the person instead of just saying, we've got to get, you know, if if we don't know an answer tonight, you know, sometimes we're just not going to know um, as we wrestle through these things. I hope that's helpful. I hope that came across yeah. the way yeah. I'm trying to communicate. It. Yeah, uh, I think it has. I think it's really helpful. Really, really helpful. Uh, something I experience quite regularly when I'm out speaking with people doing evangelism is that people with no faith naturally assume that they're okay in their relationship with God. They believe that being neutral is a safe place to be. What would you say about that? You know, a lot of people, I'm sure you experience this too. A lot of people think they're children of God, you know, everyone's a child of God. Well, that's not the biblical answer. You're not a child of God unless you're born again. And so those who are uh, not born again, the Bible talks about being children of disobedience, children of the evil one, followers of, of Satan. And so essentially then that brings us to a point, doesn't it, brother? There is no neutrality. You you are either following the prince of the power of the air or you're following Christ. You are either enslaved to your sins or you are a slave of Christ. So there is no, there's no Switzerland in this game, right? There's no, uh, there's no neutral area to stand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and, and over the years, people have been very clear about it. Uh, The Puritans and, and various, brothers uh solid brothers you know you're either there's two categories you're either unregenerate or you're regenerate so there is no neutrality and there's no sitting on the fence uh in this in this and that's so against the culture that we live in today isn't it yeah amen yeah yes yeah what are some indicators you've touched on this already but it'd be good to build on this what are some indicators that somebody has genuinely been born again yeah amen i, I would like to elaborate on this because we want to move beyond this initial conversion because, you know, conversion is repentance and faith. And we're looking for that. But beyond that, as we begin to observe someone's life, um, I'll give you an example. I had to be kind of careful not to reveal too much detail, but I had someone, um, it was a man who, who stood up before our church one time and said, that he had failed to be part of the church like he needs to. And he, he was teary eyed and repentant. So I need to be, I need to be more committed to the church. Well, that ha- that stayed for about six weeks and then, then he's gone again. Well, one indicator of a, of a person who's born again, first John three fourteen, we know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Well, David, this is talking about the local church, someone born again, loves the people of God. They they love the word of God. They love the preaching of God's word. They love to be 
with uh with with other Christians. Um they're they're not certainly I just I don't think I need to qualify this, but I will. They're not perfect. Of course they're not perfect. If they were perfect, why would they need the New Testament? The New Testament right. gives us instructions with the understanding that if um the New Testament wouldn't need to give us these instructions if we were always following them perfectly. It has to give us these instructions so that we can understand, oh yeah, these are areas of my life. Like for example, show hospitality without grumbling. Like like why why would Peter need to say that? Because there's a temptation to grumble, right? In our hospitality. But the reality of the believer is he wants to do these things. Members of the new covenant have the law of God written on their heart. And so when they're approached with the scriptures and with and with sin or confrontation about that, they may initially uh, initially balk. You know, if you say, well, brother, I think you're being a little rude to your wife. You may say, oh, no, no, no. But the indicator of someone that's been born again is after they've thought about it, after they've prayed about it, they're, they're willing to be corrected and humble. And all these, there's so many more things I could say, but this is what, this is what a believer looks like. He loves to church. You don't have to plead, please come to church. Oh, wait, you know what? We're going to give away a car. Now maybe you'll come to church. Yeah, I know for the believer you say, Hey, the Bible says come to church. And guess what we have here? We have Christ. And that's what the believer wants. And that's what it looks like to be born again. The other side of the same coin uh, and you might just turn around and say the opposite of everything you've just said here. <laughs> sure. What are some indicators that someone hasn't been born again? You know, I don't know your context, David, but the context here is, and we, we go out and we do door-to-door evangelism. And and we're in a small community of a, of a, a less than 1,500. But you, you do door-to-door evangelism and you run into people all the time who say they're Christians. And we specifically ask, are you born again? And they say, yes. Uh, Do you have a Bible? Uh, Maybe around here somewhere. Oh, are you, do you go to church somewhere? Well, no. You know, these are all opposite what I said, but these are all indicators. Again, I'm reading about the Great Awakening right now, so this is fresh. In in 1734, in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, God sent revival. And and from, now this is kind of, a precursor of when Whitfield came. He didn't come till uh, 1739, but Edwards experienced this revival in 1734 and into 1735. And records indicate maybe as many as 300 people came to faith in Christ. And that town uh, was about as big as Perryville is now about 1500 people. I think the numbers are right. Can you imagine what it did to the town? And sure enough, it did. There were effects uh, in the town, in the community, in homes. People were gathering to pray on Thursday nights. They were gathering to read sermons, right? These were all uh, indicators that they'd been born again. And those who have not been born again, it's it's honestly like if they had to choose between church and the dentist, they they probably go to the ch- dentist sometimes more than they go to the church. But but let me say this, and we can move on. But there are people who do attend church faithfully who are not born again. And in those people, it's often uh, when you try to have deep sort of communion and conversation with them about Christ and the things of Christ, you often find it doesn't take long for them to to reject that. They don't really want to talk about that because it's 
it's not where their heart's at. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Many Christians often struggle with assurance. H- how would you counsel someone in this situation? Uh, yeah, I would encourage them to, uh, we, we confess to 1689. It's got a helpful, um, a helpful chapter on the perseverance of the saints. It's very good. But a few things I would say is this is a reality. Um, we need to be careful and understand that saving faith and a knowing that you possess saving faith are not exactly the same thing. In other words, someone can believe on Christ and then really doubt their salvation. And but there actually are a true believer. We've kind of done this thing in the South here in the States where where we've said, you know, you should never doubt your salvation. But the Bible continually tells us we need to examine ourselves. We need to consider uh, our way of life. And so those who are struggling with assurance, I would say, first of all, you're not alone. Secondly, I would say, take it seriously. Because if you struggle with assurance, there's two paths that you could have. One is you may be born again, but the other is you may not be. So don't don't dismiss those. And then you begin to consider um, uh, the promises of the gospel. Uh, for every look you give to yourself, give 10 looks to Christ. Consider in your life, are there, um, are there known sin that you're participating in? You know, David, I, I think I'd actually say this. I'm more concerned. I'm not as concerned as, as the people who are struggling with assurance as I am with those who are living in unrepentant sin who are not struggling with assurance. What I mean is they're like, oh, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I would actually try to encourage a person struggling with assurance like, well, this is good that you're trying to work through this. Is If there's known sin in your life, you need to repent. You're in a very dangerous state if you're living in rebellion against God and you don't, and you don't struggle with assurance. That's, that's a problem. Um, you need to remember and not neglect the assembling of yourselves together because God gives the local church... You know, our brothers and sisters in the church can see evidences of graces in our life that we can't always see. We think to ourselves, um, we think to ourselves, well, I just haven't been growing. Whereas a faithful brother or sister can come alongside and say, oh, yes, you have, brother. I've seen it. And they can give that encouragement. So these are all the things. And, and then, of course, to never neglect the means of grace. Well, I'm struggling with assurance, so I guess I won't read my Bible today. Oh, that's so foolish, uh, sir or ma'am. Because sometimes it's through the very uh, times of meeting with God in his word that he He comforts us there with that assurance that we need. So uh, um, the Bible and prayer and, and, and the worship uh, of God with his people, all these things should continue to be pursued even as we're wrestling with assurance. Yeah, yeah. So good. So helpful. Thank you. Can a true born again believer lose their salvation? No. Uh, God says in Isaiah, I work and who can turn it back, right? There is a reality of false believers who aren't born again and they do fall away. They went out from us, John says, because they were not of us. But regeneration is a permanent change. It's something that God does. Isn't that the hope there, David? Like if we did it, then we would say, 
well, there's a way that maybe we could undo it. But because God did it, no one can turn it back. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. We both have a high view of the sovereignty of God in election. And I'm sure that we would have people watching or listening that differ with that position theologically. How would you encourage them to see regeneration being God's work? And what problems does it cause when we don't? Yeah, that's a very, a very good question. You know, I I think that we, we said this several questions ago, but if you ultimately say, this is, as Dr. James White would say, this is the dividing line. This puts you on one side or the other. And that is, what is the deciding factor in whether or not a person is born again? And if you don't hold to monergism, which means it's God's work, um, one working, God's work alone. Regeneration is God's work alone. If you don't hold to that, then you must, no matter how you couch it, no matter how you phrase it, you must say that grace is not sufficient, right? We all affirm that grace is necessary. In Arminian, hey, listen, even Roman Catholics who, who don't have the gospel they're smart enough to say, oh, yeah, we, we need grace. But but the difference is they don't affirm the sufficiency of grace, whereas I think the Reformed position is the only consistent position in affirming that the grace of God in regeneration is sufficient, meaning effectual, we use that, but sufficient in that it is enough. It does not need mankind in order to activate it it is enough to bring us from death to life and the problems um that well brother that we could have you know 100 episodes on that they're innumerable you know these things right. that we've talked about uh um even even creating sort of a, a sacramental system in the sense of you know, adding these things where maybe baptism brings it about or 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 the new sacramental system with praying a prayer or walking an aisle or, or all sorts of things. And and ultimately, brother, it it can I use the word besmirches? It besmirches, <laughs> it detracts from the glory of God. We give God the glory for salvation. And if you try to say something other than what Jonah says in Jonah 2.9, salvation is of Yahweh, salvation is of the Lord, then you ultimately bring an affront, intentional or not, to the glory of God and his sufficient grace for salvation. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And knowing that this is God's work, how do we see the three persons of the Trinity at work in salvation? Yeah, that's that's good, brother. Um, and it's important to understand we don't separate. You know, one of my great goals, David, is to never have a heresy named after me, and uh, and so far, I've uh, I've accomplished that goal. So, um, so we don't separate the persons of the Trinity. Salvation is a triune work of the three persons in one sense, all working together, and yet we do distinguish the various roles that the uh, triune Godhead plays out in in the Trinity. So traditionally. We, we say, you know, the father elected a people to be saved and gave them to the son. He he didn't ask 
for mine or your opinion. And he didn't look down the corridors of time and learn. That would be that would be heresy, you know, to say that God learns anything. He doesn't learn. He chose us and he gave us to the Son. The Son of God then uh, takes on the responsibility to be the federal head of the people of God, to take on uh, human flesh, to be born of the virgin, to fulfill all righteousness, to walk uh, on this earth, as it were, for uh, roughly three decades, to complete every jot and tittle of of the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament, fulfillment of the law. Then he dies on the cross, taking our sin upon himself, where God's wrath uh, falls upon the Son, and he is our propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. He dies bodily uh, uh, is buried, his body's buried. He raises bodily from the grave and is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the father almighty. Again, the son didn't need our help. The father didn't need our help. The son didn't need our help. And so then you have the work of the Holy spirit and it's the work of the Holy spirit to take the redemption that has been planned and accomplished and now to apply it in time. And it's interesting, isn't it, how we would all agree the Father doesn't need our help, the Son doesn't need our help, but broadly in evangelicalism, we have this idea that the Holy Spirit needs our help. Like, no, he doesn't. He applies the work of redemption uh, as he will for his glory. If, if If we were to say that man could resist the Holy Spirit's work, that's really belittling him in comparison to the Father and the Son. But we don't. He is equal. He is one with the Father and Son. He's equal with the with the Father and Son. And he uh he he carries out his work monergistically uh for the glory of for the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. When someone is truly born again, what are the next steps according to the Bible? Yeah, there is uh there is time for counsel. There is time for wrestling. But there does come a point when um, I counseled this man and it seemed like maybe for a year he was wrestling with all these things. And there comes a point where you say, look, brother, you are, uh, well, maybe not a brother then, but you are trying to use the sovereignty of God as an excuse. Right? So what, what I'm saying is the, the, uh, the next step is, to commit, you know, to the church, to follow the Lord uh, in what we call believers' baptism, and then to uh, to sit under the faithful oversight of godly, qualified elders, and to be a, a, a tangible, active part of the local church. Yeah, yeah. How should an understanding of the new birth shape our evangelism? You know, this is one of the things I argue for in the book. I think, I think that we're we're not, and I think this is backed up biblically and historically. But I think that we're not as effective evangelistically when we don't understand this precious doctrine. Um, you know, there is the reality. For example, those who say that uh, that being born again is is the choice, ultimately the choice of the sinner. They have to, I don't think they're going far enough, you know, because they they have to try to convince the sinner into something that he doesn't want to do. Well, they should be giving up, they should be giving up uh, 
better prizes, you know, better, better give away a bigger car. You know, if it means that a person is going to end up choosing to be born again, then, then you're not doing enough. Um, but, but the reality is that first Corinthians one twenty four. uh, well, let me back up and says in first Corinthians one 21, it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And then verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in other words, brother, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is with evangelism is that this emboldens us to be fools for the sake of Christ. I can go out and I can preach the gospel at our local grocery store here in, here in the Bible Belt, and I can have people look at me like I'm a fool. That's okay. I am a moronos, the Greek, uh, for Christ's sake, right? Because I'm not trying to please the world. I'm preaching the eternal riches of Christ and him crucified. And then I know that to some people, that message is not going to be foolish. Why? Because they're better, because they're richer, because they're nicer, because they're one ethnicity. Or, no, 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 no. Because they are called. Because God is going to use the preaching of the gospel to sovereignly raise their heart from death to life, to give them new life. So it frees me as an evangelist to preach the gospel, knowing that every time I've, I've never preached the gospel, David, when it's not been effective. Now, some people hear that and they say, well, what you're saying is every time you preach, someone's been converted. Well, probably not. I doubt that every time I preach that someone has been converted. But I do know this. Every time I preach the gospel, Christ has been exalted. And every time I preach the gospel, sometimes the Lord may use the gospel to harden a sinner's heart. So, so be it. That's what God says in, uh, in, in Isaiah 55, you know, that his word will not return void. Isaiah 6, he says to Isaiah, you're going to go and preach. And, and as he preaches, the people are hardened. But I also know this, because of God's promises and because of God's decision before the foundation of the world, that God is actually going to save people. So I get up every morning. Uh, well, actually, I'm not as faithful this as I need to be, but I ought to get up every morning with a deep hunger for evangelism because I know that salvation is not in the hands of men. I mean, look look at our culture today, David. If you said, well, salvation's in the hands of men, boy, that'd be terrible. But right. I know that it's in the hands of God and that God not only can God's not through saving. How do I know? Because Christ has not returned. So not only can God save, God is going to save. And so that's great hope and motivation and fuel for the gospel. So, so good. Wow. This has been absolutely fantastic, Alan. And we're about to take a very quick break and then we'll be back to ask you the free signature bar questions. So, Alan, as you know, every single guest that comes onto the bar gets asked these three very important questions. Are you ready? Yes, sir. <laughs> so, question one, what kind of music do you listen to? Okay, this will be funny, but it's very, very eclectic. Last night, we went to a, an event 
in the church van. We had some uh, a church event, and we we were coming back, and someone found a CD of George Jones singing the gospel gospel music. We put it in and we listened to it. It's funny, you know. I was like, yeah. but it's a lot, you know, from George Jones to Shy Lynn uh, to um, all all sorts of Sovereign Grace. I mean, all sorts of music. Yeah, yeah. Next thing to Jabbar question: What book or books are you currently reading? Okay, I just finished, and it's sitting right here in front of me. I just finished The Great Awakening by Joseph Tracy. Joseph Tracy, this is from Banner of Truth. This is written in 1842, so about 100 years after the Great Awakening. Oh, so good. But I'm also reading Dr. James Renahan's new book, Baptist Symbolics, uh, Volume 2, on the 1689. Now, that is a tome. I think it's like 600 pages or something. And I'm, I may be like 300 pages in or something, close to halfway. Oh, so good. I'm very grateful for Founders Ministry putting that out and, and just the historical perspective of the 1689. Yeah, brilliant. And then what about yourself? Are you planning on writing any more books after this one, Adam? I do hope so. You know, brother, the problem with writing books is, you know, there's so many out there. And so you don't want to just, you know, waste your time. But but I would like to write something about the church probably and some things that I've been through personally that maybe be an encouragement with pastors. But we'll just see as, as, Providence, uh, as Providence dictates, as it were, uh, I would like to write a book if the Lord is willing. Yeah, yeah. And last signature bar question. What podcasts or sermons do you listen to, if any? I try to I, I try to do that. Um I, I like to listen to the sword and the trowel from from founders. Uh I do like to listen to a lot of sermons. Um I, I enjoy listening to uh, Jeffrey Johnson. I enjoy listening to Brian Borgman, I'm trying to give some people maybe uh kind of under the radar people that that folks uh haven't haven't heard of before and uh i really just try to um uh, uh yeah when, when i'm jogging or whatever I, I usually maybe go on sermon audio and and try to, to listen to those sorts of things um we do a podcast a, a brother of mine we do a podcast called uh, the rural church Co- podcast 2.0 and we talk about rural church life and and things that are important and what god's doing in the local church even in rural places and so yeah that's that's kind of my podcast sermon uh area yeah excellent well, we'll make sure that we get a link to your podcast and we'll make sure that that's in the description below and i'll make sure that i check that out as well before we let you go please take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also to let people know where they can keep in touch with you on social media yeah thank you brother um you know i, I really appreciate this conversation i think we need to be having more conversations about, like this because this how salvation uh uh works is important but particularly understanding the doctrine of regeneration is crucial to understanding how all this fits together. And then these practical implications in our life, who the Holy spirit is and, and, and believing the scriptures and, and, and understanding the local church and the ordinances, all this goes together. Uh, If, if you would like to get the book, uh, freegracepress.com, freegracepress.com is, is where you should, uh, where you should look also. uh, Yeah. If you want to keep up with me, uh, I guess you Twitter is probably the best place at Quattro Nelson. That's C U A T R O N E L S O N. I'm I'm Alan Nelson the fourth, and so my nickname even before I was born, my parents were were calling me Quattro. So so that's where <laughs> where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. Uh- excellent. Free Grace are publishing some excellent books, aren't they? Really, really, really good stuff. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
Yeah. Well, we're going to make sure that we've got a link to that book into your uh, Twitter handle, into your podcast in the description below. So wherever you're listening or watching, make sure that you check that out. Alan, thanks again for your time. I've really enjoyed catching up with you. Thank you, brother. Solid Deo Gloria.